it was a scary moment of like, I know this is where I'm supposed to be, but at the same time, why? And I was confused because it was everything that, honestly, that I didn't want. I didn't want a small school. I didn't want to be at a church. And I just remember being like, okay, okay, I'm making this decision. Is it the right one? Like, Lord, am I, is this where you want me to be? Because I don't really know. Hi, I'm CK and I'm studying digital media and design. You were not on the track that I want for you. And that was really scary to feel because I really valued that. Like, I love the Lord. I always wanted to do right by Him. I always wanted to honor Him. So feeling that was really intimidating and I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't realize how hard it was gonna be. The Lord stripped every single thing that I almost like idolized, like friendships, popularity, athleticism, all that stuff, and he took that away. And it was really uncomfortable and really, really difficult. And so when I decided to go to SEU, I was in the thick of it because I was working through expectations and um, honestly learning who I was and who I wanted to be because this was a restart for me. I can talk a lot about how awesome it's been to study in Seacoast and see the way that they do things, but I think at the end of the day, and this is really what college is about, is like figuring out who you are, like figuring out where you're gonna fit into the world. You're really able to like just work through your junk, like really able to work through your stuff. And no one here expects you to be perfect. They don't expect you to have it all figured out. They know that we're a bunch of 18 to whatever age year olds just trying to figure out life and trying to figure out, is it ministry? Is it not? Is it both? Is it that I wanna carry ministry into wherever I work, whether it's in the world or whatever it's in the church. And this is a place where they really instill in us, like take the time to figure it out now. Something that I love saying, and I tell people this all the time, is the Lord doesn't waste our time. Once I got connected with the people and I started my practicum and just got to feel the heartbeat of Seacoast and Custom, and yes, this is a school, but also they really pour into your dreams and your gifts and speak into you, that was when I was like, this is what makes SU different. I think for me, I have walked away from SCU with a lot of things that I didn't anticipate coming in. So I've walked away with a greater understanding of who I am, with a greater understanding of who God is, a greater understanding of like how we do church, why we should do church the way we do. The greatest blessing has just like really been able to like hash out my calling and like figure out what do I want to do? Why do I want to do it? Why is God calling me to this? and just like really learning that I have an idea of what the rest of my life is gonna look like, and I had an idea a year ago, I had an idea two years ago, and I had an idea three years ago, and it has changed consistently. So just really being able to learn like to live life with open hands and just let God like place His plan for your life in your hands rather than holding tightly to what you think is the plan, I would say that's been my greatest blessing. It's helped me overcome a lot of anxiety. It's helped me become confident in who I am and who God is. All right, Seacoast family, put your hands together for our SEU students and our SEU program. Because of your investment, we're able to offer an accredited college experience with hands-on leadership training to the next generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for that. And let me say it this way. We're, we're here today. We're here leading the church today, but they will be here tomorrow. And if we don't do our part to help them grow and equip them, that'll be on us. And so I'm thankful for 
our SEU staff. I'm really thankful for you to make this kind of investment in them. I'm really thankful for the students who are emerging from the program and will lead God's church in the next generation tomorrow. So if you're interested in learning more about SEU, we're having a preview day March 22nd. You can check that out. Or you can check out the program on our website at seacoast.org. All right. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Lost a little sleep last night, but you're here anyway. Glad for that. Hey, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us, whether it's online or from one of our campuses, maybe in Asheville or Greenville. Grateful that you are with us. I'm really thankful for the team that uh, makes it possible for us to gather in locations all around the world and yet still be one Seacoast family. So show a little bit of love to our production team and our technology team who make that possible. So today we're going to talk about something that will probably be easy for all of us to relate to. And I'm going to give you a chance to guess what it is by showing you some notes that people left for each other, okay? This first one is probably from a roommate or a coworker, but here it is. I don't know your name, but you've been seen stealing my butter. Put it back in the fridge or I will lick everything. You ever done that? How about this one? Jesus didn't steal hot wings and pizza rolls. Neither should you. JJ and Destiny just dropping the Jesus card on them hard right there. And how about this one? Do not use, I spit in this and someone keeps using it. (laughs) And the person who responded left a heart, I spit in it too. (laughs) Just to soften the passive aggression they were exchanging. How about this one? Sometimes you just got to get your point across, right? You just got to do what you got to do to get your point across. Or we, we can all relate to this one. How about this? Ever gotten your order wrong? Whoever did this deserves extra credit. I love this one. Or this last one I know you can all relate to. If you don't replace the toilet paper rolls, the terrorists win. Do you hate America? (laughs) Nobody wants that. Come on. Or I like this next one too in response. Thank you for replacing the roll. I like how they frustrated wrote on the roll but didn't replace it themselves. Nice. So what is the common emotion that you see expressed here? Any guesses? Anger, right? These people were angry about different things, and this was their way of expressing it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It reminds me of a story about Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. Uh, Lady Astor, Churchill was this wildly popular, if you don't know, you should know, but he was a wildly popular wartime leader in the 40s able to rally the British from like the edge of defeat to, the, to victory in the Second World War. And among his advisors was a woman named Lady Astor or Nancy Astor. And she had a reputation as being a tough woman. She openly heckled Churchill during his speeches, but not without reason because Churchill would often criticize her or ignore her publicly. So there was no love loss between these two. And there's this famous exchange where a frustrated Lady Astor once said to Churchill, Winston, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. To which Churchill quickly responded, Lady Astor, if I were your husband, I would gladly drink it. (laughs) So there you go. Anger is something we can all relate to, right? 
And this is probably why Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, what we've been looking at. It was his first public address. And so we've been taking a look at Jesus's idea on different topics. And today is our opportunity to look at Jesus's thoughts on anger. Here's how Matthew records Jesus's words in his gospel. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus clearly kicks off this passage with the idea of murder, but then he quickly shifts to this idea of anger. He uses the word raka. He started with murder because it was a common reference point for his audience. This first century Jewish audience would have all been familiar with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, right? And while that was important, that's not what he wanted to really talk about that day. Because while they all knew the commandment, while they were even legalistic about it, they missed what was behind it. Because just like every other command or directive in Scripture, this one was about so much more than murder. Jesus wasn't talking about this simply so his audience would stop killing each other. He wanted to talk about something that would transform their hearts and transform the way they interacted with each other. So here's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. We're going to talk about something that can be challenging for all of us. And to do it, we need to acknowledge, though, that at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is not interested in just talking about murder. He's talking about so much more. He's working backwards towards the root of anger. And, and let me say this. I just spent a few weeks in Costa Rica with my wife where we, we did a lot of surfing and studying and resting. And I learned one thing about myself while I was there, and that is that I am a huge nerd. It's true. I'm a huge nerd. I blame my mother, who was an educator all of her life and instilled in me the joy of learning. And so watch out, kids. If your mom's a teacher, it could happen to you. But I get really excited about the original Greek and Hebrew languages. I get excited about complex academic ideas. And so there are some fairly dense things in this message. I believe they'll be helpful to you. Otherwise, I wouldn't share them with you. But what I want to do today is just honor the text. And this is what God has shown me. And I'll say this too. This message is just words unless it points to the word whose name is Jesus. Okay, and so that's where we're going to end up today. All right. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the biblical perspective on anger using three questions. What is it? Why is it a big deal? And how do we deal with it? What are we supposed to do with it? Okay. so what is anger? Ever thought about it? Secular psychology will tell you that anger is a secondary response to a primary emotion. And that emotion is usually fear. It's often the fear of not getting what we wanted or what we feel like we deserved or what we expected. And when that happens, it leaves us feeling unseen or neglected. 
and that makes us angry. A good working definition of anger is anger is a common response to an unmet need or desire, and it emerges from the fear that our needs and desires aren't important to the people around us. But while fear is usually the epicenter of our anger, anger can look different in each of us. I don't know if you know this, but there's kind of a spectrum for anger. Some of us burn hot and some of us burn cold. It's true, right? You guys are looking at each other like you're the cold one. You're the hot one. You know, it's true. For those of you who burn hot, your anger is loud. It's intense. You often use words as your weapons. Nobody has to wonder if you're angry. You're like a raccoon in a trash bag. People just want to back away from you. They don't know what to do. For those of you who burn cold, your anger is quiet. It's withdrawn. And you use silence as your weapon. You hurt people with disconnection. And anger can sometimes masquerade in this group as self-control. But don't be fooled. It's still anger, and it's just as intense. And, and what's funny is that you'll often marry your opposite in this way. Dana and I are like this. She burns hot, and I burn cold. It very much matches our personalities in this way. We, in fact, we were on this trip. We were sitting by a pool one day, and she was talking about something that she had learned in this Bible study she's been doing, and she was real excited about it. And so her voice just kept lifting and lifting and the energy kept growing. And I could see over her shoulder this family that was watching us. And they thought we were fighting just because of the energy in her voice. And I wanted to be like, hey, turn around. She's just real excited about the Old Testament. It's nothing to see here. Like, just mind your own business. That's kind of how it works. Her, her intensity is sometimes what catches me off guard. It's also what attracts me to her. And you probably already know this, but... There's an important thing about anger is that whether you burn hot or cold, it can cut both ways. I don't know if you know that, but not only can it hurt our relationships with others, it can also hurt us. It becomes clear when you think of the Greek word that, that's used for anger in the New Testament. A literal translation is to swell, and it describes an emotion that grows and grows until it has to be released. Usually that's by explosion or implosion. Has that ever happened to anybody? Sometimes you're looking at each other. I know that it has. I can see it. But that's what happens. It blows up on us in one way or another. It also helps us understand why anger can be so harmful to us. Because in sociology, there's this idea called the law of spatial boundaries, which basically just means that each of us is dealing with a finite amount of emotional capacity. And when that capacity is filled with one thing, there's naturally less of it available for something else. So it's the reason we should only have so many close friendships at one time. It's hard to juggle. It's the reason we should only be married to one person at one time. It's just impossible to do. When we stretch ourselves thin emotionally, we become exhausted. And so when we're dealing with an, an emotion like anger that naturally swells and grows within us, taking up more and more space in our lives, there's less room in us for the things that we want in our lives, like joy and peace and hope and contentment, all those things. And so that's what anger is. That's just a brief overview. But, but why is it a big deal? If it's something we all deal with, 
then what's the big deal? Why is anger something that Jesus is talking about in his very first public address? And I'll give you fair warning here. This is where the message is going to get a little bit uncomfortable for us, okay? But here, here's what Matthew says again. He records Jesus' words saying, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, will be answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Strong words. He starts with this idea of murder and then quickly shifts to the word Raka, which at the time it was a derogatory term meaning empty headed. They used it then the same way that we would use the word idiot. And then if that wasn't enough, he uses the word you fool or moros in the Greek. We get our word moron from it. And so what's common about these two words is how they were used then and how they're still used today. Because when we call someone an idiot or a moron, when we think of people that way, what we're basically saying is that their level of competency and understanding and intelligence is beneath ours, right? Now, maybe I don't think this is just me, but this is me in traffic, okay? Just saying. I don't think I'm alone in that, but I know that's how I feel sometimes. But when we do that, when we put other people beneath us, it's also the beginning of pride. And when you mix anger with pride, you get a pretty lethal combination, which is exactly why Jesus starts by talking about murder. Think about some of the most horrible ways that we have treated each other throughout history. Were they not all motivated by a sense that one group was not equal to another group? It's true, isn't it? And while we might think it's a stretch to go all the way from you fool to murder, Jesus knew better. He knows where the roots go. If you're still doubting the connection, then consider the Holocaust. It began with a seemingly benign perception that one group of people was not equal to another group. And it ended with the murder of millions of people. And I realized that that most of us will never go there. Most of us will never actually take the life of another person. That's a good thing. but That's not the point. Remember, Jesus is shifting the focus off of murder to what's in our hearts. So the question is not, would you murder somebody? The question is, would you put someone else beneath you? Would you consider them a fool or a moron when you compare them to yourself? Because that's where the real violence will begin. When we look at this passage, we really shouldn't be thinking of it in terms of just physically ending the life of another person. Because the vast majority, again, will never do that. But when we put someone else beneath us, then we bring a different kind of violence upon them. Think about it like this. Have you ever murdered someone else's confidence in themselves? Meaning, have you ever treated someone in such a way that it made them question their identity? Or or have you ever murdered someone else's reputation? Meaning that you shared something that they holded you, they, they trusted you to hold safely. Or have you ever murdered someone else's sense of 
worth and value? Have you ever made someone feel like they were less than the person God made them to be? It's a lot quieter in the room. When you think of it this way, it gives us a little more perspective, doesn't it? Because as we listen to that list, knowing that we have done some or all of those things, we begin to understand why Jesus was talking about murder and anger in the same breath. We begin to see how slippery the slope is between putting someone beneath us and causing serious harm to them as a person. And, and listen, I know, I know that this can be hard to think about, but sometimes before you can get well, you have to acknowledge the sickness that's inside of you. And this sickness is inside of all of us. Most of you won't know the name Adolf Eichmann, but he was one of the primary architects behind the Nazi death camps. And he escaped to South America where he lived for several years after the Holocaust, but he was eventually brought back to Israel to face trial for his crimes in about 1960. And for that trial, they needed witnesses who could verify the critical role that he played. One of those witnesses was a Jewish man named Yahil Danur. And Danur had a surprising reaction when they brought him into the courtroom. At the moment he saw Eichmann, he fell down on his knees and began to sob. Through the courtroom into a frenzy, the judge had to call for order several times trying to regain control. And sometime later, there was an American news outlet that interviewed Denour, and they asked him about his reaction that day. They said, what was it that caused you to fall down sobbing in the courtroom that day? Was it because you remembered all of the horrible things that Eichmann was responsible for? And his response left the interviewer stunned and silent. He said, no, when I saw him, I saw myself. I realized that he was an ordinary human and that I was capable of the same things as he. You see, anger gives us a glimpse into the human heart's capacity for tremendous evil. Tim Keller says it like this, evil lurks in the heart of all quite ordinary human beings. Jesus, of course, knows that it is in there. And while for most of us, the self-centeredness and sin of our hearts has not led us to overtly criminal acts of violence and cruelty. It has still caused misery for the people around us. And it has kept us from serving the God who created us and to whom we owe everything. And Jesus came to cleanse us of this, to purify us from what is spiritually wrong with us. Martin Luther said it differently. He said that humanity is incurvatus se, which in Latin means bent inwards meaning that left to ourselves, we are naturally self-serving. And we will put our own needs and desires ahead of others, even if it brings harm to them. So let me ask you, who's glad they came to church today? You feeling encouraged yet? I like the way Keller draws the conclusion. He says it like this. We are all more wicked than we cared to believe. And yet we are all more loved than we dared to dream. That's true. That is true. And one of the upsides to passages like this is that it can teach us to read God's word. There's something in theology 
called prohibitive promotion. It's an interpretive model. It sounds like an oxymoron. I know, just hang with me. But basically, it means that what the Bible prohibits, it naturally promotes its opposite. And so when we read a passage like do not steal, it means we're to be people who are generous. And when we read a passage like do not covet, it means we're to be people who are content. And when we read a passage like do not lie, it means we're to be men and women of integrity. And so if we use that interpretive model here, and we know that God does not want us to murder people physically, then we know God delights when we protect human life. And if we know that God does not want us to murder people's confidence or reputations or self-worth, then we know God delights when we build people up and when we protect and honor their stories. And when we choose to serve them versus using them for our own purposes. When we see people the way that God sees them, it will have a profound effect on how we deal with any anger we might feel towards them. So that's what anger is. And that's why it's a big deal. But what are we supposed to do with it? I mean, truly, what, we all deal with it. But how? How should we deal with it more effectively? When I was preparing for this, I read some articles and journals from secular sources, and I came across an interview. I wanted to know how the world would answer the question. And this interview was with a Zen Buddhist and some first grade children. I don't know who thought that'd be a good idea. Whatever. They handed the children a microphone and they said, you can ask him any question you want. And, and after a few random questions, a little girl got the mic and she wanted to know how to get rid of her anger. She said that sometimes I get angry with my little brother and then I get in trouble with my parents and I get put in timeout. And she wanted to know how to end the cycle. And so after asking the question, the Zen Buddhist looked at her and said, are you sure you want to get rid of your anger? And the little girl just looked back at him like, you did catch the timeout part, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. And then, then he said, why don't you hold on to your anger and let it transform within you from something bad into something good? And the little girl just stared at him like she smelled something bad. Like, I don't buy anything you're saying. And, and I, to be fair, like that question's not an easy one. How do you get rid of your anger? But for what it's worth, I think that little girl got some terrible advice that day. So I'm going to give you some suggestions, three ideas that will be more helpful to you. First of all, we've got to learn to recognize anger in ourselves. We even need to learn how to honor anger in ourselves because telling yourself not to be angry or just holding on to your anger is a terrible strategy. It's not even a biblical strategy. In fact, scripture tells us to do the opposite. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So we can see here that the Bible doesn't tell us to not be angry. Even Jesus had moments when he was angry. In fact, the New King James translates this more literally against the Greek. It says, be angry and do not sin. So what Paul is telling us here is not to not be angry, but there's a way to be angry and not dishonor God. He also says that it's important to address our anger quickly. Do not let your anger go down. Do not let your sun go down before you, whatever that verse is. <laughs> Don't let the sun go down without dealing with your anger. 
It's not, there's nothing magical about that. Like nobody's going to turn into a pumpkin, right? But it's important that we deal with our anger quickly. And that's because of what we talked about earlier. Anger as an emotion naturally swells within us. You can say that it doesn't, but it does. It swells within us. Some people, it builds up real fast and others, it takes a long time. But know that it's, it's moving in the wrong direction as it sits within you. And I'll say this too. When anger's left unchecked, it gets worse. It becomes contempt. And here's the problem with that. The basis for anger is usually a judgment about someone's actions. But the basis for contempt is usually a judgment about someone's worth. That's worse. So how do we deal with it? How are we supposed to deal with our anger? I think we deal with it the same way a doctor deals with an infection. You trace the symptoms back to the source. And the source of anger is almost always fear. And so let me give you some questions that will help you work backwards from anger to find the fear that might be triggering you. Here's the first one. What am I afraid of here? I know that's profound. What am I afraid of here? What need or desire is not being met or not being recognized by the people around me? What am I afraid of? Here's another one. Why do I feel threatened in this situation? What is it that I feel like is being taken from me? Here's another one. How can I express my fear here instead of my anger? How do I express fear instead of anger? Because it's hard to fight with somebody who's courageous enough to show you their fear versus someone who's just being aggressive with you, right? Vulnerability almost always disarms a situation and promotes connection. So how do I show fear here instead of anger? So that's one way of dealing with anger. You find the source that's triggering it and deal with that instead. Another way to deal with anger involves other people and like I said, I did some research to see how the world would answer the question of how to get rid of anger. And one of the more helpful articles was from some doctors at the Mayo Clinic. They suggested some things like get some exercise. Go for, when's that not a good idea, right? Get some exercise. Take a time out. Do the same thing to yourself the little girl was trying to avoid. Or practice relaxation skills. Good idea. Or use humor to disarm anger. I, I, all of this sounds fine, like good ideas, not bad things. But what surprised me about the list is that they in no way have you address the person with whom you might be angry. And that's very different from the approach that Jesus gives us in the passage. He says this, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, because this was the first time in Jesus's public ministry that we see him use the word reconcile. It's also the last time. Every other time that we see the word reconcile in the New Testament, it's a different word. And I'll explain that in a minute. But here, the word he uses is dialoso. It's, it's a Greek word that means a couple of things. Dia, meaning across, like dialogue, and lasso, meaning to change or to have an exchange, particularly of the mind. 
And so the work of reconciliation that Jesus is encouraging us to do here means to literally get across from one another with a willingness to have our minds changed. That's not easy. That's terrifying. But the reason so many reconciliation efforts fail is because this is not how we approach each other. We don't come to the table with a willingness to have our minds changed, only an insistence that the other person change their mind, right? And then when that doesn't happen, it just solidifies our anger. So if we're trying to answer the question, how do I deal with my anger? Then we will have to learn how to reconcile in the biblical sense. We will have to get across from each other with a willingness to have our minds changed. And it's not surprising that Jesus gave us this advice in the context of offering the sacrifice. Because it will be a sacrifice to let go of the feelings you have when you are angry. It will be a sacrifice. It will cost us something to be willing to have our minds changed and see a situation from another person's point of view. And that's the sacrifice that I think Jesus is most interested in here. It's not the animals that his audience could have put upon the altar. He wants something else on the altar. He wants our hearts on the altar. He wants our minds on the altar. He wants our emotions on the altar. He wants every part of ourselves laid there before him open. So how do we deal with our anger? We find the source. We find the fear that might be triggering us. And then we have to be willing to get across from one another and listen and understand. And the third thing, you may need to get some help. Seriously, you may need to get some help and see a professional because some of you have come out of family situations where anger was just the prevailing wind in your home. And you have no idea how deeply that affected you. And it might be worth sitting down with a professional who can help you explore how that has affected the way you interact with people today. So I'd encourage, if you think you can do that by yourself, you're fooling yourself. Sit down with someone who's qualified enough to look backwards in your life and help you understand what went on there. Now, as I, as I wrap this up, I mentioned that Dana and I were recently in Costa Rica for a while. And, and in Costa Rica, they use a different kind of currency from us. Here, we use U.S. dollars, right? They don't buy as much gas as they used to. I know that's too soon, but they still work. And there, they use something called colones. Looks a little different. Spends a little different, but there's a conversion rate between these two. You can trade a certain amount of colones for a certain amount of dollars. They look different, but they have the same value and worth. The reason I mention it is because there's something here worth noticing. You remember that word reconcile. Jesus was the only one to use it. He used it right here one time. Every other time we see the word reconcile in the New Testament, it's a different word. It's the word katalasso. And whereas dia means across, kata means down. And lasso, when it's paired with it, means to change completely or transform. So the picture of reconciliation that we get is that of something above us or someone above us coming down to change us completely. We see it in verses like this. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself 
through the, through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. What a picture. The God of all creation coming down to change us completely. In a literal sense, that's what it means. But in a cultural sense, it was used to describe a currency conversion where one thing of value was traded for something else of equal value. Listen to this. When God looked at his son, Jesus, and when he looked at us, he saw two things that were different, but not in terms of their value to him. Can you imagine? That's how the God of the universe sees you. The cross was a transaction. It was a transaction where one thing of tremendous value and worth, his son Jesus, was traded for another thing of tremendous value and worth, you. The cross does not represent an exchange that God had to make, but one he chose to make. And the only explanation is his love. So what does that say about you? What does it say about the people you might be angry with? If the word katalasso gives us perspective into how God sees and values each of us, then it also forces us to reconsider how we treat one another when we're angry. God sees tremendous, immeasurable value in you. He sees that same value in the people around you, even the ones you might be angry with. When we begin to see that in ourselves, when we begin to see it in others, it changes everything about how we interact with each other. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the pictures that we get in your word, that you came down to where we were, not because you had to, but because you wanted to. And you traded something of great value for us because you see the same value. So Lord, help that to arrest us in our minds and in our hearts. Help it to transform us in every way that we need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Here's where we want to give you guys a few minutes just to consider a couple questions. What is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? You know, maybe today has begun to feel like a wake up call where you're, you're finally beginning to realize that that anger you thought was just sitting quietly within you. It's, it's not sitting there. It's growing. It's increasing. It's crowding out space in your life for the things you want to be there. Things like joy and hope. And if that's you, then I want to encourage you today. Come to a cross. Write down whatever it is that has you angry. Pin it there as your way of saying, Jesus, I don't know how to do this. But I know that I need to start walking away from this. So I ask for your help. Maybe for some of you, today is the day you've finally begun to understand what's behind your anger. A fear 
that what you need or want isn't as important to the people around you as you hoped it would be. If that's you, then I want to encourage you, come and, and maybe light a candle. Ask that God would bring the light of his wisdom into your situation, that you would begin to see what it is that's driving that anger. Or maybe today is the day you've realized it's time to address the anger you have and reconcile with somebody. It's time for you to get across from someone with a willingness to have your mind changed, a new willingness to listen. Or maybe today's the day you've realized it's time for you to get across from someone and ask for forgiveness because of your anger. In either case, I want to encourage you, encourage you to come to someone on our prayer team. You can do that in here. We'll have prayer team online as well. They would love to stand with you and pray for you. You would begin to understand what you were made for. That you'd be released from this anger. Also, as a, a part of response time, I want to encourage you to come and take communion. Come and celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made to be broken in his body and to have his blood shed that we might be reconciled to God. You don't have to be a member of Seacoast, just a member of the body of Christ. And then finally, as a part of response time together, I want us all to continue in worship. I want us all to be generous to the God who came down to transform us completely. Let's respond together.